Hello, and welcome to the Your Book is Your Hook podcast show, where you get the opportunity to go behind the books and discover the process from thought to sales of how other authors, screenwriters, scriptwriters, and playwrights have succeeded in getting published and produced, and how they use their films, TV episodic series, theatricals, and books as their hook. You'll also find out about industry professionals and resources to help you as a writer and author with your book, film, theatrical project, or TV episodic series, so you can write, market, publish, and produce it, and make money with it too. Jennifer has a great show in store for you today. We'll be right back with Jennifer right after this short message. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with one of my really amazing friends in the business. She is a filmmaker, she is an author, and she is an educator. She has really been all around Hollywood and all around publishing and all around those that want to enter into these fields in very unique and sometimes magnanimous ways. My guest, Nina Sadowski, is a New York City native and an entertainment lawyer in recovery. We're going to find out what that term means who has worked as a film and television producer and writer for most of her career. We're going to get into that. And the other things that I want you to know about her is she is the novelist of her most recent book, Convince Me. We're going to talk about that in our second interview with her. Nina is a member of International Thriller Writers, Mystery Writers of America, Sisters in Crime, the Humanitas Prizes Wolfpack, an organization of women writers, directors, producers, and showrunners, and Creative Futures Leadership Committee. She also serves as Director of Educational Outreach for the Humanitas Prize and co-leads the Wolfpack Sponsored Screenwriting Lab at Hedgebrook. Nina is really an amazing person. She graduated cum laude from Connecticut College with a major in dance and a minor in creative writing. And in the top 10% of her class from the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law, where she served as articles editor for the Arts and Entertainment Law Journal. So when I tell you that she's been around this world for a very long time, she has. <laughs> well, I'm not that old. Not that long. I just have been a lot of things. <laughs> oh, I'm just so happy to welcome you to the show, Nina. Thank you for having me, Jennifer. Oh, you're so welcome. You know, this is such a privilege and it's such a pleasure to be able to talk with you about all the different experiences that you've had really since you went to college. I mean, you've been dabbling and working and really making some incredible strides and headway and offering other filmmakers, other producers, writers, directors, the opportunities that weren't possibly there for you so you made them. So you refer to yourself as an entertainment lawyer in recovery. That's such a cool turn of the phrase. Why do you call yourself that? Okay, so it really comes down to the whole way I went to law school. So it, it, it really defines my whole dilemma in my life is that I'm equally right-brained and left-brained. So when I was younger, I studied dance and theater and writing, and I really considered myself an artist. And my parents were very supportive of that, including you know, supporting me in a four-year college where I got a degree in dance with a minor in writing. But after I graduated, they were like, okay, now what are you doing with your life, right? And it was all of a sudden this pressure. 
And I applied to law school, not because I had any burning desire to be a lawyer, but because uh, my then boyfriend was taking the LSATs and so we could study together. And my father said that he would pay for an apartment if I went to law school. And I had graduated college and was living home with my parents. And I will just freely admit that I was shallow enough to take that deal. And then <laughs> found myself in law school going, oh my goodness, I, I don't know about this. But I did do well because once I was in, you know, competitive with myself, not really with other people, but I did do well in law school. And that launched me into my first entertainment job, which was working at the Schubert Organization in Legitimate Theater in New York. So I say I'm a, I'm a lawyer in recovery because I was only ever admitted in New York where I have not lived for you know a couple of decades. I live in California, never got admitted here. So I don't practice anymore. And I, I kind of feel like, you know, being a lawyer, I, when I was working in more business, fully business jobs or in, in more legal jobs, I always sort of felt like I was doing the work and watching the other people have the fun. And I wanted to have the fun. <laughs> well, sometimes, sometimes the law is fun, but, you know, the rest of this stuff is a, a lot more fun. <laughs> Some people love it. You know, it's just a question of what you yourself, you know, love to do, not you know, no judgment. I know people who love being lawyers, including one of my brothers, but, you know, it's just not for me. Yeah. And, you know, the nice part about it before we go to the next topic is that it gives you a really good base as a filmmaker and as a professional in the Hollywood field to have that background. That's true. And I think that, you know, filmed content more so than publishing and, and in a really profound way, has to be about the merger of art and commerce. You have to be thinking equally about content and marketability and strategy because it, the, the money is just too big. The money's at stake is just too big not to be thinking that way. So having a, a legal or a business background, as well as creative chops and instincts, um, has really come to serve me. I bet, because that hybrid, it pays every single time, every yeah. time. So let's talk a little bit about this journey. It's been quite a good one for you. You've gone from writing and rewriting films for the Disney, Walt Disney Company, working title films, Lifetime Television, and other places. So let's ask first about screenwriting. What was your number one takeaway as a screenwriter from all these different experiences? And most important, what are the two pieces of advice you would share with a screenwriter today after having all of those writing and rewriting experiences? First of all, I would say that when you're any kind of writer has to decide what they think is the best format of expression for the idea they want to explore, right? And there are a lot of options now, right? So in print, it could be a graphic novel or comic book or, you know, or, or print it, you know, print or, um, you know, in, in film content, it could be, you know, anything from Quibi, style, very short pieces of content to full-length films to episodic tellings that are intended to last over five seasons, right? So I think as an artist, you first have to ask yourself as a creator, what, what is the best expression for this idea that I want to explore, for these characters in this universe that I'm creating? One of the biggest differences between writing prose and, and or, you know, novels, short stories, whatever, and writing for film and TV well, there's two main things that I would say I would point out that are vastly different. 
One is that film and television writing is highly codified and highly structured, particularly in network television. You know, you have to hit those act rates where the commercials are going to go. Um, and it's less true in streamers or in, or in premium cable. But even so, every network that you might work for every has a very strict structure. And most screenplays are, are a three-act structure. I, I think you could argue that every story is a three-act structure, beginning, middle, and end. You know, that's basically it. But there are artificial structures put on, imposed on top of that when you're writing in film content. There's much more leisure in writing prose. You don't have, you know, again, you need a beginning and a middle and an end, but you don't need to be hitting precise marks in that way. The other main difference is about process. Writing a book is a largely solitary thing. You may give it to a couple of beta readers, readers that you have, friends, but really it comes down to you and your editor if you're have lucky enough to have an editor or to you and your agent before they take the book out. Right. Um, and then up to you and your editor, but you know, it's, it's a very solitary process and really an editor needs to say, I want this book. And a publisher has to say, this is how much I'll give for this book. And then you have a book. It's a thing that exists in the world. There it is. It's really two people have to kind of say yes. Right. In film, it's completely different. You are required to work in a collaborative way. It can be one of the great joys of film content creation, but it can also be one of the most frustrating things in the world. And as the writer, I mean, a great friend of mine, the screenwriter Robin Swicord, once said about um, filmmaking that until the point of production, really, the writer is the only person who has really declared themselves and said, this is what this story is. And therefore, executives, agents, producers, everyone who surround the project has to weigh in, right? They want to put their imprimatur on it. And in terms of advice, I think that I would always say it's important for a writer to figure out how to balance notes against what they're trying to say from their authentic voice, because you don't want to be reactive to notes. You know, if you hear the same thing from a lot of people, I say give it some credence, but don't, you know, don't be jumping around to every read. But in film, you have to navigate hearing a lot of different voices, sometimes offering contradictory opinions, right? And figure out how, how to navigate through. And even then, at the end of all that, you know, I've had many times where I've had a project and I've delivered all the steps and I've turned it in and then it just doesn't get made. So you have to recognize that writing a, a screenplay or a teleplay, you're only creating a map to a, something else, to another entity that exists in another medium. With a book, you have a book, right? So that was one of the great satisfactions of switching over to being a novelist, is that, you know, I would write a book and there it would be. It would show up in a box, you know, on my doorstep. You know? <laughs> um, I have a I've written a lot of film and television. None of it's been produced. Everything that I've made as a producer has been written by somebody else. And I don't denigrate my position as a producer in those films. I'm a creative producer when I produce and, and very involved in all the creative decisions, including the script. But as a writer, you know, the only things of mine that exist in the world are novels. So I'm going to actually ask you about something that you have written that got produced because you did it. <laughs> <laughs> because you've also written, produced, and directed that short film, The First Year's a Bitch. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that was actually, that was a little a bit of me making lemonade out of lemons. And um, so I'll tell you the story, which is that 
I worked with Meg Ryan for five years. I ran her production company for just over five years and made four movies in that period of time. I had, you know, 20 projects set up all over town. And, you know, I had two children during that time. It was truly the most, you know, productive I've ever been. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, Meg decided she didn't want to have a company anymore for personal reasons, which, you know, gossip columns will remember as an affair. And so we didn't have a company. And so I was out of a job after having devoted, you know, heart and soul to this company. And I went to work for another company about after about eight months of looking for work, which was pretty stressful because I'm very work identified. And I was also the primary breadwinner for my family. And as I said, I had had these two kids while I was uh, working for my And so after eight months of this very stressful time, I was offered a job and it was a president of production job at an international co-finance company um, that was building an international distribution network. And I thought this was where I was going to work the rest of my life. I owned a tiny piece of the company. I was working 14, 16 hours a day. We were having international calls. I was, you know, escorting directors around Cannes to keep them out of trouble. You know, like I thought, this, you know, I thought this was going to be my life. And then about six months in, my boss came to me and said that he had made some miscalculations about the investment and our major investor was pulling the funding and I was out of a job, basically. It was a very uh, awful period of time for me I, on a lot of levels. I mean, I had a contract um, and this is where the lemonade comes in. I had a contract. You know, a lot of people said, well, you're going to get settled out. That's so great. You're going to get a big chunk of money. But I was also... I, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. It took me eight months to get this job. How long is it going to take me to get another job? What do, what do I want to hitch my wagon to someone else's star again? Because, you know, Meg decided she didn't want to have a company. This boss screwed up and now I don't have a company. Maybe I want to be more, you know, reliant on myself, right? Um, and it was during that period that I really began to commit to writing and as part of that, I wrote a, a full-length script called First Years of Bitch, and I thought, well, why shouldn't I direct it? And so I took the first scenes, and I created a short based on them, and I took some of that money from my <laughs> settlement out of the company that had broken my heart, and I shot a movie. And, um, you know, I used uh, Without a Box, which is a great, great platform for filmmakers because it really streamlines the application process for short films it'll tell you every festival in the world and what the requirements are for length or content and help you you know figure out where you should best spend your money but you can upload your film and you can upload all your documents and it really streamlines that process and you know we won a few awards which was sort of cool you know i used it as a calling card to try to hope make that as a feature which never happened but i still love the experience of it and i would love to direct some more because it was really just fun and i know a lot of people because i've taught at film schools for 12 years i know a lot of people come into film school thinking they want to be directors and then actually have the job and go oh my god no that is too hard a job. i don't want to do that i'm going to become a sound designer or something else i loved it i love the because it's you know uh spinning plates and that's what i'm best at <laughs> no matter what i'm doing <laughs> Is doing too much. That's where I excel. <laughs> it's almost a requirement as a director, right? Correct. <laughs> right. Exactly right. Just speaking of that award, before we leave that topic, that was for best editing in a, in the New York Short Film Festival. 
that you received. So what was it like to actually have a festival acknowledge your work? Oh, it was great. I didn't actually go to that festival, but the ones I went to where the film played, it was great. Uh, you know, I participated in Q&As afterwards. And, you know, the premise of the, you know, it's a darkly funny look at the first year of marriage is, is the premise. And the, and the premise of the short is that a husband and wife are bickering and everything possibly is going wrong uh, on a way to a party. He's late. He runs over the present. They're just, you know, so angry at each other. And, you know, they kind of snap and, you know, the wrong thing is said, you know, kind of like, I wish I had never married you. And husband goes into the gas station. He's filling up the car. He goes into the gas station to get gum and their robbery breaks out. He's shot and killed. And oh, wow. she watches and she gets out of her car and she runs in at horror and finds this, you know, bleeding body and broken glass. And then we cut back and we realize that she hallucinated the whole thing and that he is actually fine. And then they make up. And so it was, you know, what I was trying to, what I was playing with, with, with that piece and that whole script was how, you know, the people you love the most can also make you the angriest. And so I was sort of playing with the fantasy of living it out in, in your head. Um, <laughs> but I think it's also, you know, even though that's early in my, I would say in my recent like that's, I've been writing my whole life. I have always considered myself a writer, but that, that is a early work in comparison to some of my more later things. But I think it's also reflect my sort of cheerfully dark brand. You know, I, I publish a dispatch called Dispatches from the Cheerfully Dark Mind of Nina Sadowski, although for the pandemic, I've pivoted to from the resolutely resilient mind of Nina Sadowski. You know, but, but the cheerfully dark thing is that's true. I'm a cheerful, optimistic, hardworking, kind of solid citizen sort of person. And I explore the really dark parts of our psyches in our, in my work. And that is partly how I think I remain the optimistic, cheerful person that I am. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be right back with more from Nina Sadowski. Are you an author with a published or soon-to-be-published book? Have you considered producing an audiobook version of your title? Hi, I'm David Wolf, founder of Audavita Studios and the producer of this podcast, Your Book is Your Hook. For years, we've helped authors and even publishers create audiobook versions of their titles. It's not hard to do, you just need the guidance of an experienced team. As an author, you should know that audiobooks are the fastest-growing segment of the digital publishing world. And by getting your book up as an audiobook on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes, you unlock a whole new audience that may not have the time to sit and read, but love to listen. Without an audiobook on the market, they may entirely miss your content. At Audavita Studios, we record authors reading their own audiobooks and also provide professional narrators to read them. And we do it all remotely. No expensive studios or travel is required. We provide flexible scheduling and fixed project rates that include getting your audiobook out to the online retailers like Audible, Amazon, iTunes, and many more. If you'd like to learn more about how to get your book turned into a powerful audiobook product, visit audivita.com and schedule a no-obligation call with me. I'll personally talk you through the entire process and share everything you need to know to get it done. At Audavita Studios, we've produced hundreds of audiobooks and have many happy authors that have worked with us. I'd love to talk to you about how we can help you get your audiobook produced and up for sale. Just go to audavita.com and schedule a call with me. That's audavita.com, A-U-D-I-V-I-T-A.com.
Welcome to the Education Corner. As authors and writers, we're always learning about resources and industry tools that we can use to improve our book project performance and the enjoyment of our writing and marketing experiences for all types of projects. Today, let's talk about how your book or film may serve a greater purpose. It is our nature to care about others and ourselves. Rewrite this into the plots of books and films and limited series and our stage projects. We hook the reader by engaging them in the lives of our characters and memoirs and what other nonfiction how-to books might do for them. We serve the readers with our souls while finding fulfillment for ourselves. Books and films have a wonderful way of extending themselves into greater efforts to help others. There is a natural segue that evolves when a book or film is affiliated with the charitable effort or organization. It doesn't have to be directly in the book or the film, but the book can become a hook for so much more and help others, just like any project. There are some books that are set up as a donation vehicle to a particular organization, such as the way the Chicken Soup for the Soul books were crafted, where money was donated to a chosen charity for each book based on a theme. Other books are deemed an affiliated effort with a charity by the publisher, such as books published by Morgan James Publishing, which offers a donation form at the back of their books for Habitat for Humanity, or at the discretion of the author, such as romance novelist Nora Roberts, deemed the most charitable celebrity in the world after Oprah, where a portion of sales from her book Vision in White, the first in the Bride Quartet series, was donated to the Nora Roberts Foundation, which supports literacy and education through organizations such as Pro Literary, First Book, and Literary Council of Washington County, Maryland. There are lots of other ways writers, authors, screenwriters, and filmmakers can have a greater purpose and make a bigger difference with books and films today. Here are more great examples of how others are doing just this. Karen Slaughter, a New York Times and number one internationally best-selling author, is a thriller writer who has spearheaded the SaveTheLibraries.com campaign and events all over the United States. She's all about the libraries. Jonathan and Deborah Flora, the co-producers of the film, Lieutenant Dan's Band for the Common Good, saw what actor Gary Sinise was doing with the band he formed after the name of his character in the movie Forrest Gump and how he was entertaining our troops to support them. Jonathan is a veteran of the U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne Division and served 12 years in the military. He and Deborah thought Gary's efforts were something worth documenting, so they made a film about his tour with the band. Then they went one step further and turned it into a vehicle for donations to support the troops so viewers can contribute to these noble worldwide efforts. Daryl Strawberry wrote his memoir, Straw, Finding My Way, in which he shared his life's transformations, struggles, tragedies, and triumphs. 
Then he and his wife were so moved by what they saw one day after a visit to a school for autistic kids that they felt compelled to find a way to help them. So he set up a foundation so he could raise money and bring attention to the fight for autism. Years ago, after Hurricane Katrina hit, New York Times bestselling author Heather Graham created the Writers for New Orleans Workshop Weekend, which she holds usually on Labor Day weekend every year to bring people back to New Orleans and to help stimulate the economy there. In East Hampton every year, there is the famous annual artists and writers charity softball game featuring names you know and others to benefit local East Hampton charities. Now, as you know, this year, we're not going to be watching anybody play baseball in East Hampton, but they've taken this particular challenge with the pandemic one step further. And you can go to awgame.org to see information about the GoFundMe challenge, where teams are raising the most money to become the home team at next year's game. So go out and support your authors or artists so that you can still continue to support their efforts through the Artists and Writers Charitable Softball Game. Pretty neat. Lots of creativity comes into play when people want to do good things for others with their writing. Many writers like to get involved, particularly with children, and making sure that they have access to books, such as James Patterson's readkiddoread.com site, which is dedicated to making kids readers for life. I personally enjoyed donating a portion of my sales of my book, Boys Before Business, The Single Girl's Guide to Having It All, to the Sojourner Center in Arizona with my partner who wrote the book with me, Kim Miles, which is the largest women's shelter for domestic violence in the United States. I'm also a spokesperson for Project Night Night, which hand delivers books into the hands of children in homeless shelters throughout the United States. And I'm a proud supporter of Heifer International's Read to Feed program, where kids in our schools are encouraged to read more books by getting pledges for each book they promise to read, and then providing that money to Heifer's worldwide efforts to end hunger while caring for the earth. I was also involved with starting a chapter of First Book in Brooklyn, New York years ago with another partner who was at Penguin. First Book is a charity dedicated to putting new books into the hands of children in need in my community. I live in Brooklyn. You can find out where you live if your community has a First Book chapter and get involved too. So that is the question I ask you today. As a writer, author, screenwriter, or filmmaker, how do you give back and give more with your books and films? Provide a local book signing for a charity or do it online in the age of COVID. Choose the charity of your choice, one that means the most to you, or donate a free screening with a donation to your film. That's very possible during this strange and unusual time because you can offer for people to buy tickets to a screening through an online distribution company who is distributing your film. 
then you can donate those proceeds or a portion of them to that charity that means so much to you. Done with some of the books you've been reading? Donate them to a local library or charity who can provide them to someone else or that can charge a small fee for purchase as a donation to the charity, such as Housing Works Bookstore Cafe here in New York City, which supports those with AIDS and HIV. Donate the books you've written or the, a copy of the film or even a link to it that you've made to a good cause, such as a local shelter or school, to help them with their fundraising. Want to donate to support our troops too, like Jonathan and Deborah Flora and Gary Sinise and his band? Donate books to Books for Soldiers or Operation Backpack, who are still shipping books overseas to our proud men and women who are defending our country around the world. There is so much you can do as an author, writer, screenwriter, or filmmaker to make an even greater difference with your book and film. I encourage you to find ways to use your book and your project as your hook for the greater good too. We'll be right back with Nina Sadowski. Need a respite from the chaos of today's environment, the catastrophe of yesterday's and today's news, and the calamity caused by the upheaval of the routines you used to have where you can be productive? Well, why work or write alone? The Make It Happen Room is now open and you can work or write from wherever and be part of a community that's rocking it. In addition to your book is your hook, I'm the creator, curator, and concierge of the Make It Happen Room, where like-minded, highly productive people gather to get their work and writing done during a three-hour, thoughtfully curated experience. Chock full of action hours, you'll have accountability, the structure that you're looking for, combined with self-care, positivity, a like-minded community that is really supportive, recipes for resilience, resources for you to use to make sure you're getting your stuff done with a touch of joy, and most importantly, that you get results from the three hours that you spend. Join me at jenniferswilkov.com forward slash the-make-it-happen-room. When you go to that site, You'll be able to see my favorite definition as to why you want to be in the Make It Happen Room, because tomorrow is a noun. It's a mystical land where 99% of all human productivity, motivation, and achievement is stored. I invite you to join me in the Make It Happen Room so that your tomorrow is today. Joining me now is Kendra Sit Robbins from an amazing organization called Project Night Night. And Your Book is Your Hook is a proud sponsor and supporter of Project Night Night and all the efforts that Kendra makes. So let's find out what she's doing and what you're up to. So Kendra, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be talking with you. You know, I know that you're so busy. Let's talk about what you actually do. So Tell us a little bit about the population that you focus on. And I know that it has to do with homeless children. What exactly is the population that you support with all of your efforts? You are exactly right. Project Night Night is dedicated to helping homeless children feel safer and more secure. We work with kids 0 to 12. And we do it because 1 in 30 American children is going to face homelessness this year. 
Now, I know that you started this nonprofit in your garage. So (laughs) tell me a little bit about where you started and why you chose to do this. You have the heart of gold that everybody wants to be a part of. Tell me what you did. Well, you're super sweet. But really, um, all I did was think about a small problem and how I could tackle it as one person and hope that maybe others felt the same way and would join me. But I used to be a corporate attorney. And when I had my son, I knew that he slept well, no matter where we were, as long as he had his blanket, his book and his stuffed animal. So I borrowed some of his items initially and sent them to a domestic violence shelter. And they really responded well. And I had to put out the call to others to help me with these items. And that we really just grew organically, grassroots, a few night-night packages at a time. And now we distribute about 35,000 every single year to 850 shelters across the country. That's amazing. And what's in the package itself? Like when it's delivered hand-to-hand, eye-to-eye with the children and the shelters, what do they get? Each night-night package contains a new security blanket, an age-appropriate children's book, and a stuffed animal. And we put them inside of a canvas tote bag. Everything in there is new and special and high quality so that the children opening them feel important and noticed and valued. And in the pre-pandemic environment, I know that you were working with over 10,000 volunteers a year. And now because of the current environment, volunteering isn't really something that's that easy with a nonprofit, but our listeners can still help. Can you let us know how can our listeners continue to support your amazing efforts for these children who just adore what it is that you deliver? Absolutely. You are exactly right. Volunteering has changed immensely, but we still are going to count on volunteers to support us. And this time it's going to be a small request to help us financially. With every $25 donation, we can place a complete night-night package into the arms of a homeless child. And we can accept the donations on our website. So it's very easy and it means a great deal to us. And I know as a fact that you are the leading provider of nighttime comforts for homeless children. And I really want to acknowledge you, Kendra, and thank you so much for creating such an amazing organization here at Your Book is Your Hook. We are proud to be a supporter of your organization and encourage everybody listening to take out your wallet, donate the $25 so that Kendra can continue to do what it is that she's doing so well and make the efforts that we all wish we could for the homeless children in our community. Kendra, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Jennifer. I appreciate it. So let me welcome Nina back to the show because we're going to focus on the industry professional side of Nina's career and experience during this episode. And at the end of this episode, I'm going to invite you to the next one. But Nina, let's continue. So let's let's touch on what you were referring to earlier, because you've had some pretty big lead roles at several production companies. You uh, went to Signpost Films after you left Proofrock with uh, Meg, and you've had these roles of working as a film financier and porn distributor and president. 
So what's, what has your experience been in working behind the scenes in Hollywood making deals in the domestic and foreign arena? And more importantly, what advice would you give to those in these roles and those who aspire to them today? Are you asking about people who want to be on the business side of the equation? Is that what you're saying? Okay. Yeah. So um, I think that here's the beauty about making films is that you don't need a degree in film. I made lots of films. I don't have a degree in film. You can have a degree in film. There's some actual excellent programs. I work for NYU and we have an excellent program, but you know, you can also really just come and reinvent yourself here. I think that for people who aspire to work in the business side, a law degree, an MBA, really understanding something about marketing is crucial. Uh, understanding marketing, not just from a simple perspective, but from a marketing research perspective, a cultural perspective, an anthropological perspective. There are a lot of different ways I think you have to look at demographics and connecting to demographics. And I think you have to understand quite a bit about complex financial systems and how things are financed. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of different ways that Movies and content are put together, co-finance arrangements, pre-sale agreements, license agreements, you know, loans made on the advance of delivery agreements, right? So there's a million different ways that money and resources come together to make something. And if you don't understand the complexities of deal making in a bunch of different arenas, you know, including now I would say health and safety and, you know, COVID compliance. Right. I mean, I think that to, to be working in a business that is not just about, you know, creating and selling. I know widgets is always the example, but let's say, you know, creating and selling teapots. Right. You know, this is a, a business that requires, you know, the management of all those logistics that come with creating anything and also outsized personalities. A lot of things that you can't control, weather, you know, et cetera, that might affect production. You know, it's just a, it's a complex uh, industry. And what I would say, I think to sum it up, is the more you know about the more things, the better off you'll be. This is truly an industry where knowledge is power. Where being a lawyer has helped me, where working in distribution has helped me, where, you know, every job I have had has led me to be able to now really market the Nina Sadowski brand as a, as a separate entity. And it's all pulling from all those pieces of my history. And, you know, that's one of the things I, I agree with you a hundred percent is that the more you know, the more knowledge becomes power, right? Because it's mm-hmm. really something where you can infuse what you know, like you're also an educator. You're also, you know, went into books. It doesn't mean that you left all that education behind that you got from those experiences. It's almost like it just continues to knit the fabric that you're using to create that Nina Sadowski brand that people know, Hey, you know, I really like the way she crafts this. Oh, look at that. She's been doing that for so long. Right. But it's just the form that they receive you in. And that's the nice part. Yeah. I I think it's funny because I've been very, very blessed in publishing. Right. So I sold my, the first book I ever took out and I, and Valentine just bought up the fifth one for me. So I've been at that, imprint the entire time and I've been very lucky and I'm blessed for that and I don't but I don't mean to dismiss my talent or whatever but sometimes people will say oh like your overnight publishing success and I'm like yes after 20 years of building a skill set connections relationships 
and, and knowledge that allowed me to do that. Right. So it's not overnight at all. I came into it, you know, having schooled myself in a lot of different arenas. And even so I had a big learning curve, you know, pivoting into publishing. There are things that I didn't know and I had to really become educated about. Yeah. You know, every time you approach something, it's different. And you are currently the program director for NYU Los Angeles, which for those of our listeners who don't know, this is a semester abroad program geared toward advanced undergraduate students considering careers in entertainment and media industries. And I know that you've really been enjoying this role. Um, you're uh, actually overseeing multiple divisions for NYU. What is the one piece of guidance you're, you are finding yourself repeating to your students in the program to continue to encourage them about the careers that they tell you they want to pursue? Well, I wouldn't say that there's one piece of advice, one single piece of advice. And I think particularly now, because obviously as a culture, we're figuring out impact of the pandemic and you know, I see people trying to figure out how production resumes here. Um, you know, there obviously have been shifts to the publishing industry because of COVID. But the, the things that I, I say are this, always listen to your authentic voice, right? That doesn't mean that you won't have to take jobs that you don't want. And I think that work does beget work, all of that, and that you shouldn't be above doing any job. I also agree with that, that, you know, don't don't have an attitude about it. But I also think that right now, what I've been counseling uh, people is that there aren't a lot of jobs. And one thing that you should be thinking is how can you build your network even if there's not a job um, to be had? And so one thing I've found is that industry professionals, and maybe particularly now because everyone's being a little reflective, are very willing to offer informational interviews. So if you have a contact to someone who will give you an informational interview and you just say, you know, the request is simple. I really admire what you've done with your career. I was wondering if you could give me, you know, 20 minutes to half an hour of your time for me to ask some questions as I begin to figure out mine. Most, you know, if you're throwing a little flattery, most people will absolutely agree to that. And you can do it via Zoom now, so it's even easier. You're not even saying you have to come meet me for coffee. It's like you just have a Zoom, right? And then when you have the meeting, ask that person, ask, have come prepared with specific questions relating to their, their trajectory, right? So when you made the jump from this job to that job, how did you do that? Be specific. Come with one or two questions specific to your own. Do you think I should do this or that? And then before you leave, ask for one person. Is there one person in your network that you think also might be good for me to talk to, right? It's such a simple ask. And some people will say, no, I can't think of anyone. Some people say, oh, you know, you should talk to my friend, Gracie. She, she might have great, you know, have something to offer you. And then you go and you talk to that friend, Gracie. You say, you know, person A recommended that I reach out to you and I'm looking for an informational interview. You have that interview. You email person A thanking them, saying how helpful Gracie was, that you'll keep in touch as you progress. And then when you have your meeting with Gracie, you ask the same question. And I have one person, right? And that that's how you begin to build a network of people that you then can keep up to date in the loop. So I had an interview today or, you know, not overdoing it, right? But, you know, certainly like I heard from a student this week who I'd given that advice to who just got a job. And so he reached out to tell me that he got a job, right? You know, he just just was like, here, I'm happy to tell you that I, you know, this is how it worked. And I think that that is something that 
you can do now when I think a lot of people are feeling hopeless, particularly people who are just graduating, where is the economy I was expecting? What am I going to do? But it's one thing that you can do that. So you feel proactive and like you're still on your career path while you're trying to figure it all out. And there are also so many ways to network right now, because like you mentioned, the world is flat. And so it makes it so much easier. Everything from LinkedIn to other things that have popped up. One of the things that I have found myself in concert with you telling others just like you is that make networking your profession. Just think of it as your job. You want to have one conversation a day, try and find one person or look in somebody's link, pick one person on LinkedIn, look at their profile, go see what they're doing or shoot them an email, say, hey, you look interesting. <laughs> Would you be willing to talk to me? Right. I mean, it's it's yeah. really something that's great advice, Nina, really great advice. Yours is too, because, like, you know, like trolling LinkedIn and other spaces that are denied, designed to create connectivity, because I think everybody wants to create connectivity now. Everybody's looking for a way to feel that they have, that they're of service to, I mean, I hope all, all the good people figure out, how can I be of service to my community? You know, how can I make this situation better? How can I ease some of my own feeling of frustration and impotency, right? Giving 20 minutes of your time to help someone, it always makes me feel good. You know, it just does. So, me too. Me too. And if somebody contacts you, you respond and just say, you know, sure. I mean, you may give them a calendar. It may not be the next day, maybe the next week or two, but give them a chance, right? <laughs> I, I really try. If people contact me through my website, I really try to respond to every single one. And as you say, I don't always get to it because I'm doing like six jobs. I think now I counted last week. I have six jobs. Um, <laughs> it's like, that might be enough. Maybe I'll get rid of one, but I have like six jobs. But I, you know, but I do, and because one of those jobs is the maintenance of my fan base, right? And and right now, because I've been promoting a new book, that has been my effort has been very much about promoting that book, right? Mm -hmm. I, but you know, the, I think that responding to people who write back in response to my dispatches or who, who come through the website and have a question, or you know, ask I'm asked to donate books and things occasionally, you know, things like that, or uh, I'm now. On the random house sign up sheet, I'll come to your book club. <laughs> so um, you can also reach out to me about that through my website. So, I, you know, I like that. You know, I like that community. And one of the things I learned at a Thriller Fest conference on marketing for authors is that a newsletter and personal appearances are the strongest, one of the two of the strongest ways for a author to build community because people feel like they get to know you. And so, you know, because I'm a big ham and will go talk to anyone, um, <laughs> as you might've noticed, not shy, you know, I like that part of it. I wish I had more time to do it. Cause I also really love hearing what people think of the books and if they, you know, the, the questions they have about, you know, process or about theme or uh, all of that. I, I like all that. So on the industry professional side, let me ask you two last questions. How would a writer approach you? How can they find you through your website or social media? And can they even work with you as a filmmaker these days? Oh, you mean as a producer of someone else's work? You mean? Well, any writer could reach me um, through my website. There's a, a you know a contact button where you can send me an email. 
or and sign up for my dispatch if you want my writing tidbits and other things that come along with that. I do where I try to, you know, share some of my series. I'm the you know, things that I'm really working on as a producer now are also things that I'm writing. And, and let me explain why I, even though I sort of cut my teeth on film, I've really pushed my efforts to television. Um, first of all, who knows what's going to happen to theatrical film now? Second of all, for the last few years, theatrical film has very been much about big tentpole movies, you know, superhero movies, things that are going to, you know, speak to all four demographic quadrants. And that's just not where I, you know, I live in character based stuff. Right. And so, and I'm, you know, no one's going to hire me to write, you know, a Marvel movie, right. It's just not, you know, for many reasons and mostly the ability to better explore character. I now work primarily in television and in television, the writer is also the producer and the writer is the person who really has the ultimate creative control more so than the director who is sort of a hired hand directors come and go on television productions where the, the showrunner and the writers stay through. Um, in film, it's completely flipped writers are considered fungible and replaceable. And it's really the director's vision that matters the most. So since now I'm working on an adaptation for television of my burial society series as well as another original pilot and series that I'm writing that's not based on IP of mine, but something that I'm really excited about in, in my landscape of moral ambiguity. <laughs> so, so I have those two pro projects. I have the school. I have the promotion of Convince Me and really proud of that book. And then um, some other things that I'm doing on the side. So for me to take on someone else's work to produce, it just doesn't make sense for me right now. I'm not going to produce a movie and I'm not in a position, you know, maybe I will be in five years where I could be just a supervisor on someone else's TV show, right? So right now, just for the pure purposes of the number of things I'm juggling and where I need to put my energies, I can't take someone on. But I would be happy to offer general advice, not to read your entire screenplay, let me just say that, um, but because I don't have, I have limited time to read, but... I would say I'm happy to answer general questions. In fact, in my dispatch, I um, have a feature called Hollywood Decoded where people write in and let me offer this out to the authors out there who may be listening is that if you have a release coming out and have a Hollywood Decoded question, I'll include it, your question and answer and also link outs to support your book. So that's a sort of a community service because I love the writing community and how we all try to support each other. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. So let's pretend somebody could actually have a virtual coffee in this strange environment with you. What is your perspective of the future of the entertainment and book publishing industries and how films and books and other projects will be produced now with all the advances that we're experiencing in the digital age combined with whenever COVID finds its way to the end? Well, that is a long and complicated question, and I don't know that I have a simple answer for it. I, I can tell you where we are right now, which is that production is trying to figure out how to go back into production. That is, you know, there are COVID compliance officers, the set requirements now, what that means for insurance is being worked out, what it means procedurally is being worked out. Clearly, there is a desire for content and to also get the creative economy, you know, back up again. 
just it's also you know it's devastating what's happening and you know um, in that economy as it is you know many places in the country. I do think that we're going to have to really rethink. I don't know what it's going to look like. I mean, one of my favorite things to do is to go hear live music. And I honestly can't think about like when I will feel comfortable going to a concert or how concerts are going to function in the future. And, and, you know, finer minds than mine have to figure that out. Um, I do think that the distribution of film content is probably going to change forever. One thing that I would predict is that movie, the- and this is just a pure guess on my part, but movie theaters become more specific. So if you have something like the new Chris Nolan movie or Mulan, two movies that have been bounced around because of COVID, but say post COVID, you have a big movie like that. You know, you're going to have a huge opening weekend. I think what'll happen is that you'll see it'll be in theaters that on that opening weekend and also simultaneously available on home video for a premium. So if it's 15 bucks in the movie, in the movie theater, maybe you at home will pay 50 bucks to rent it, right? That opening weekend. And then after that, it'll be available on video on demand at a, at a reducing price, right? So there'll be, if you want in on the high end experience, you can either go to this theater, right? The open, the newness, if that's important to you, or you can watch it at home for a premium. But I think that we're going to see a lot of adjustments in that regard. I don't know if some of the theatrical chains will survive. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, I actually saw an an article today that came out about AMC theaters. And uh, one of the questions that they are proposing in this particular article is if we need a chief health officer at Mm -hmm. companies because they're trying to protect both employees and patrons that would want to come in and see the films. So it's a very interesting, timely comment that you have as well as I know next month in September or while we're recording this now, right, it's next month. But the most important thing that's so that's happening is Disney Plus is actually charging people over and above what they have already been charged for their cable for that channel, if anything, over and above the regular rate, they have an upcharge just to see Mulan. Um, which is $30 to actually see it. So the model that you're suggesting is absolutely the direction. I predicted that, but I didn't know it was already happening. And I think I think that's going to be inevitable. They can't sit on an asset like that, right, that is basically burning money every minute that it's not returning money, right? Yep, uh, absolutely. I mean, above the line, below the line, it's not going to work. It's yeah. not going to It's not going to earn out if you can't get it out. Yeah, exactly. It just can't. So I, you know, I don't, I think that we're going to see a lot of pivots. I think a lot of people are trying to figure out what, what it means and how to do it. You know, we'll just have to wait and see. So I'm going to remind people that you can go to Nina's websites. Uh, Nina, do you want to repeat those again so that our listeners have the best ways to contact you? And then we'll take a short break and we'll come back and talk about your publishing career. Okay, sure. It's Nina Sadowski, S-A-D-O-W-S-K-Y, not I, people always get that wrong, but S-A-D-O-W-S-K-Y dot com. And that's my website. And on my website, you can email me, you can sign up for the dispatch, and it also has all my social handles. I particularly recommend following me on Instagram because I also share my really wacky paintings and drawings. I've been working on a group of COVID self-portraits as of late. It's a totally different look into the 
the whacked out mind of Nina Sadowski. Awesome. If you've enjoyed listening to my conversation with Nina today, please join me for the next episode where we will be talking all about Nina's experience with screenwriting, script writing, and how she became a novelist just four years ago. I look forward to seeing you then. Thanks for listening to the Your Book is Your Hook podcast. Become a fan on Facebook. Follow Jennifer and the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Subscribe to the Your Book is Your Hook YouTube channel and leave a comment on Jennifer's weekly videos. Connect with her on LinkedIn and join her group called Your Book is Your Hook so you can find out who's going to be on the podcast each week and other tips and techniques to use for your books and projects. You can quickly find all of her contact information on the website at www.yourbookisyourhook.com and look for the About Us link at the top. There you'll find the Contact Us page so you can easily click on and find all Jennifer's social media contacts as well as a great way to send her an email. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.